0: Second Thessalonians tonight, and as you are turning, use your imagination this evening without going to sleep. Um, Use your imagination, and in your mind's eye, I want you to, as you're turning, finding Second Thessalonians, imagine a place for you of rest and relaxation. Got the picture in your mind? Going to a place that causes you to rest. What did you see? Maybe you're like some people and uh, you are, you're this kind of person. You like the, the ocean, the beach, the waves, the sand, all that stuff. Right? You like the sun, sunset, the warmth. All right? That's your place of rest. Some of you are probably not uh, beach people. Perhaps you are. You like the crisp chill in the air. You like seeing, you know, from a cabin, of course, seeing out your window and seeing the snow and the mountains. That's your place of, of rest. And maybe there's others of you, you know, you're the out in the woods kind of person. I can tell by the reactions. Like, you know, we got pockets of people, different places. That's your place of rest. And if you were to describe, you know, maybe why that is a place of rest, there would be specific attributes about that place that causes you to be at rest. Perhaps it's the sound of the water. Perhaps it's the the, the quiet. Perhaps it's the chill in the air or the warmth in the air, uh, whatever it might be. But there's certain things, there's attributes that cause you to be at rest in that particular place. Now hold that thought. We're here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And tonight we're going to read this sentence that Paul opens the book of 2 Thessalonians with. Yes, from verse 3 to verse 10, it is all one single sentence. And so if there are any homeschool moms who are looking for a really good project for your older teenagers in their English I would love to see this, this sentence diagram. So if you want to do that, you will make my day and maybe get your young people mad at you. But anyway, or mad at me, or the way they should be. Um, but this is one complete sentence. And you know, a sentence is a structure of words that uh, has one complete thought that is being conveyed and communicated. There is a great deal of subject matter that we'll read about in verses 3 to 3 through 10 a lot. And each one of those you could branch off and do a study in that specific subject matter. So there is a lot there. However, for our uh, the purpose of our study tonight, we want to learn okay, what was what was the the emphasis, the point? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire uh, Paul to write this sentence. What is the that singular thought? What is the main thought that's being conveyed? And that main thought then will tie into the greater context of what the message of this entire letter would be. And I think you can summarize. You could take that main thought, and that's going to be our main thought tonight. You could take that thought and boil it down to one single word, and it is the only not only verb, but uh, specifically imperative verb that is in this sentence. There's only one. Okay, so as we read it, see if you can find it. All right, so you're looking for the only imperative verb in this sentence. All right, so we'll start in verse number three. We looked at verse three and four last week and and, uh, dealt with some of those things. We're not gonna dig in necessarily to verses three and four for sake of time, but that is the beginning of the sentence. So we'll start there. It says, we are bound... To thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense the tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed with heaven, or from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe." because our, our testimony among you was believed in that day. One sentence. Did you catch the word? One imperative verb. I think I heard it whispered, right? What is that word? Rest. It is the word rest. Rest. Paul writes, and he says, in communicating all of this truth, which again, in different subject matters, different areas. But his point is this. Thessalonian believers, rest with us. Rest with us. The idea of of resting is being relieved. It's being eased. And you might gloss over that command, that imperative command that that, that, uh, Paul is giving And not realize the significance until you remember what we talked about last week. One of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter specifically is that he had learned, he had heard that the suffering that they were enduring, the persecution that they were going through had only increased since he had left. Probably only, and we talked about this last week, probably only Uh, six months to a year, maybe a year and a half by this point, um, since since he was there. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not a natural response for me when the tribulations come. And in verse 4, it talks about the persecutions and tribulations. We talked about those last week. When I'm in the midst, when I'm experiencing persecutions and tribulations, when I am, as verse 5 talks about, when I'm suffering, When I am experiencing, in verse 6, trouble, when when things feel like they're caving in around me, when things feel like, like we talked about last week, the pressure, all right, that idea of of, of, uh, of tribulations, the the, the screws being turned on me, when I'm experiencing that, the, the exact opposite of what I feel like doing is resting. I mean, here you have these believers. They had faced. You can read about this in the book of Acts, chapter seventeen. They had faced the the uproar of a Jewish rent-a-mob. You know, remember those guys that were hired there by the Jews, the the uh, the, the fellows of the lewd fellows of the baser sort. and They had been uh, put all together and and uh, um, uh, whipped up into a fury and. Uh, many of the church members had been arrested, including specifically one named Jason, a leader in that and, and among the congregation. There, he had to be to be bailed out. The security of him was taken. The idea that uh, they had to pay for his release later on. So many of their church members had been arrested. They had faced this mob and that persecution. Though Paul was now out of the picture, and they they were the ones who asked him to leave. Paul, for your safety, would you please go? And uh, Paul left. But though he was gone. That persecution maybe in the immediate term, uh, the the the, uh, the severity of it may have dipped just a little bit, but now it was continuing on. It really didn't really didn't go away, and perhaps by this point it was even getting worse. And Paul says, "Rest with us. Rest with us." Hmm. You know that in, in Webster's dictionary they define rest. Or he defines rest in this way. And I want you just to kind of take a note. It's, the, it's all the opposite of our natural reaction to persecutions, tribulations, trouble. To rest means to cease from action or motion. I mean, if there's anything that in, in my life, uh, the natural tendency is to start action, to start motion, uh, uh, to, to, to get busy doing something to get out of or to relieve the stress that I am under. It's you know, tribulations and persecutions and trouble. <clears throat> to rest means to cease from action or motion. To rest means to be quiet. To be still. Or undisturbed. Now, you might be able, in your trouble, you might be able to cease from you know, outward action and motion But you know that the inward action and motion, the wheel that's going in your head, is round round and round and round and round and round, and you're just thinking, 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 you're dwelling, dwelling, dwelling. You're not undisturbed. You're not quiet. You're not still. To rest means to be at peace, to be calm and composed. If there's anything that pushes the buttons so that we lose our composure and we're not calm, it's when the pressures come. when the persecution comes, when the tribulations come, to rest means to lean on something or stand on something, you know, like a pillar that rests upon a foundation. And when we're going through difficulties and you know we're not sitting there resting on something we're just we're we're in that motion that we talked about before we're we're action do something get out of this relieve this fix this and here you have paul in verse number seven to you who are troubled rest with us just imagine that you are a member of the church at thessalonica And you hear this. To you that are troubled, rest with us. I might be tempted when I hear that to say, you know, easy for you to say, Paul, you left. You're gone. We're, We're stuck here. We're in the middle of this. And you're telling us to rest? It's one thing to tell somebody to say, hey, you need to rest. But then the next question is, and I don't think you know, uh, these believers at all, we don't have any indication that they were being antagonistic towards the message. But the next question that I ask is, if, if, if God wants me to rest, if, if God, through the inspiration of the Spirit and the, 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 uh, the pen of the Apostle Paul, if God is telling us to rest, then what is the next question? How? 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 Are we supposed to rest? And I think answering that question is what I believe this sentence is all about. All of the things that Paul mentions contribute to answering the question of how do we find rest? Even in the midst of these difficult situations. Remember back to the picture in your mind? There were specific attributes, there were specific things about that, the, those different scenes. And maybe you had a different scene in your mind. But there were, there were things about the scene in your mind that caused you to be at rest. And what we see here, specifically there are attributes that Paul brings out. And, and, and uh, uh, very specifically he's talking about attributes of God that makes it possible for us to rest when we remember those things. So just two main points tonight. First of all, Paul points out specifically for these believers to to rest in the righteousness of God. To rest in the righteousness of God. You'll notice in verse number 5, he talks about... You'll notice the word righteous is repeated twice, verse 5 and verse 6. Your sufferings are a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy for the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing... With God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Word righteous used two times, and of course, we understand God is righteous. Many people, they use the idea of suffering, of trouble, of tribulation as an argument against the righteousness of God. Like, why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, that must mean that God is not right. But here, Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is using suffering as an evidence for the righteousness of God. Okay, so we got to get our minds wrapped around this. And of course, verse 5 is probably the most difficult um, verse in this passage. And I'm going to do my very best uh, to kind of break it down for you. And, and not only just hear some things that it could mean, but in the logical flow of the sentence, this is, this is what I believe uh, of God is saying through, through Paul. But he's pointing out that because of the righteousness of God, because of this attribute of righteousness that that God is, it allows us as believers, even though we're going through tribulation and persecution and trouble, we can rest in the fact that because of God's righteousness, that He is doing something through you. Do you know And no matter what situation or difficulty that you might find yourself in, as a believer... Because of God's righteousness, he is doing something through you. You notice in verse number five, he says, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. And that idea of which is, or those two words, which is, that's a singular verb that specifically the translators of the King James Version added in to connect us back to verse number four. And you'll notice that it's a singular verb, not a plural verb. So in other words, the, the communication here is, that all that's happening in verse 4, and specifically we have the patience and faith that these believers were demonstrating in their persecutions and tribulations, that thought, all of those things together, this one thing is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. Manifest token. What does that mean? Well, something that is a manifest token is it's a demonstration it's an evidence. It's proof. We have manifest tokens that, that uh, we're used to seeing. I have one on my hand. It's a wedding ring. And it's a manifest token. It's an evidence. It's a proof, a demonstration, that I found somebody who would actually marry me. Right here. Got it right here. All right, read and weep. I did it. All right, it worked. <laughs> but it's a something that can be seen from the outside. It's not hidden. It's not veiled. But it's something that you can see. And 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 uh, people do this, you know, out in public. They see someone, and they might be able to look on their hand whether or not they're they're married, and they see it ring. Oh, they must be they must be married. Why? They they found evidence. They found a manifest token of the fact that they are. Married, And so, specifically, what Paul is saying is though your, your patience and faith in your tribulations and persecutions, those things are a manifest token of the righteousness of God. They're evidence. They're proof of God's righteousness. Now, think about this as a believer, specifically the believers in Thessalonica. What, what God was communicating to them, He was saying to them, I am using you To demonstrate and communicate who I am. Boy, that's a powerful thought. That in our trouble, in our tribulations, in our persecution, God can use us as a demonstration, a communication of who He is. And God is saying, You are my, you are my evidence that I'm choosing to display to the world of my righteous justice. That's what He's saying. God is using you and the sufferings that you endure to communicate His impending judgment. Now you could see this evidence, this token, in two different ways in this verse. One way is that God's allowance of suffering in the lives of His own people is evidence for the righteous judgment of God. And here's what I mean. We know that all things that God allows into our lives as believers, for those of us who love Him, we know that all things He works together for good. We know that God's doing that. And so the very presence of persecutions and tribulations in our lives, God can use for our good, for our benefit. It doesn't mean that what we're experiencing is good, but it does mean that God is working those things for good. God is allowing those things. And many times in His allowance of those things, one of the things that He's accomplishing is that He is purging and refining His own. Because we belong to Him, because we are children of God, the Bible teaches that we experience something called chastisement. That sometimes through the negative that we experience in life, God corrects us. God refines us. God purges us. And so if God is going to allow his own people, to go through persecutions and tribulations in order to, to purge them and, and bring them to a more, uh, a more righteous state, a, more, a state that's more like him. If God is going to do that to his own, how much more is God going to judge those who are not his own? Amen. And I think that's the point here. And I, I, I think Peter, in his epistle, explains it the best. He, he basically restates this truth from 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse seventeen and eighteen notice it's the same idea. It says for time is come, the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, with God's people. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? If God is dealing with us in this way, what about those who don't belong to him? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? So you see this, God is using these difficulties that the believers are facing, he's using that as evidence that he is going to righteously judge this world. And Paul's telling them, God's using you in this way. You are his evidence, you are his token, you are his demonstration. That's one way. I believe the second way that God is doing something through them, and we see this in verse number four, was through their proper response to suffering. you notice we we talked about this last week? How were they responding to the suffering that they were in? They were responding with patience, the idea of endurance, and faith, trust in God. Enduring faith. That's how they were responding. And because of that, because that's what they were displaying on the outside... People looking on saw the righteous judgment of God. They looked at them and they said, how is this humanly possible? I see what they're going through. I see what they're dealing with. I don't understand how this is possible. It it, it has to be something more than just them. And of course it was. It was only as a result of the, the righteousness of God that was wrought in them when they were saved and now coming out of them. It's the only way to explain it. There's no other human explanation. And so Paul was encouraging them. He was saying, God is doing something through you. And in our tribulations, in our sufferings, in our difficulties, we can be assured that God is doing something through us. God is using those. Perhaps in the the lives of those who are looking on. uh, Perhaps with friends, neighbors, and families. Perhaps even with people in our own church, that God is demonstrating who he is by what he's doing through you. God is doing something through you. But look out, look look there in verse number six. God is not only doing something through you, God is doing something in you. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them. Oh, I'm sorry, go back to verse five. So which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. For which ye suffer. Now, this idea of being counted worthy. As believers, we are not and we can never be worthy of the kingdom of God on our own merits. We understand that. That was necessary for our salvation. Our only hope is the merits, it's the, the righteousness of Christ that's granted to us by grace at the point of salvation. So, this, worth, this, this worthiness is not. Not necessarily something that's it's in us. It's not like we are earning our salvation. However, as we endure trials, as we go through suffering, as we experience persecution, we are counted worthy. And the idea of being counted worthy, it's a, it's a passive verb, which, is, which means that it's something that's done to us and for us, not by us. Otherwise it would be an active verb. So this is something that's done on our behalf, and specifically it's done on our behalf by those who are watching. And we alluded to this a little bit earlier. But in the eyes of others, people are watching and they're seeing the worthiness that's being worked in us for the kingdom of God. The trials of life are God's way of helping us to work out our own salvation. To take what God has done in us and display it on the outside and to the outside world. And that fitness, that that worthiness that, that is then seen by others, specifically for these believers, what was seen was their patience and their faith in the persecutions and tribulations they endured. That was seen by those who were on the outside. And the only conclusion was their response to the suffering that they were going through was otherworldly, or we could say it's other kingdomly, Because when you got saved you joined, you became a member of the kingdom of God. And one day you're going to experience the ultimate fulfillment of that in heaven. But even now, you are a part of the kingdom of God. And your response to trials should be one, not of someone who belongs to the kingdom of this world, but of someone who belongs to the kingdom of God. And in the eyes of God, they see on the outside, externally, what God has done on the inside when we go through those trials. So this worthiness is in the eyes of others, but it's also in the eyes of God. We understand, again, only Christ can make us positionally worthy of the kingdom of God. But after salvation, you understand, that begins the process of sanctification, making us more and more fit, and that's the idea of this word worthy, making us more and more fit or practically worthy of being a member of his kingdom. And of course, one of the tools that God uses, as we referred to earlier, in his sanctification process is the tool of trials and suffering. He tries us. I wish we had time to go there, parallel with this idea. First Peter talks an awful lot about suffering. We referenced 1 Peter 4 already. Here's two other verses from 1 Peter 4. It says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. As though some strange thing happen unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Our trials are there to try us, to prove us, to demonstrate who we really are. Now, God knows that, who we really are. Sometimes we need a little help seeing, like, what's, where am I in the sanctification process? And sometimes trials and difficulties show us where we are. But God uses these things to do a work in us. God uses troubles and trials to deepen our longing for heaven. God uses... Trials and difficulties to diminish the attraction of this world. God uses persecution and suffering and difficulties to stir a longing in us for the return of Christ. Oh, that it would be today. I wonder if that trial of exile on the island of Patmos and the difficulty that John, the Apostle John, was going through Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Well, his heart was in the right place. God can use trials and difficulties to expose and chip away at some of our own fleshly responses, our reactions, elements of our sin nature. God was doing something in them. This is encouraging. These attributes allow us to rest because we realize that God is in His righteousness, is accomplishing His purpose through me and in me. And not only that, not only does God, is God doing something through us and in us, but He's also doing something with us. Verse 6, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. God sees The injustice that you face. I think that's an adequate word to describe what the Thessalonian believers were dealing with. They were dealing with injustice. They were being treated wrongfully. They were being treated spitefully because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They were experiencing injustice. And when we go through times, our soul, as the believers there in the book of Revelation, you know, that were in heaven, they were crying out, How long, Lord? How long? But the promise here is God's going to do something with the injustice that, that you're experiencing. God's going to do something. And why is he going to do that? Well, we're talking about resting in the righteousness of God. God will do something because he is righteous. And he will right the wrongs. Verse 6 starts, starts with that word, seeing it is a righteous thing. And the idea is, if after all, now this isn't something that's new. If after all, but something we need to be regularly reminded of. That God in his righteousness will recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. There is In that verse, a promise, and specifically a promise of righteousness. That God is just. God is righteous. Those two words uh, go closely together. Very synonymous with each other. And because of his righteousness, God will render ultimate righteousness on your behalf. If you've experienced mistreatment, if you've experienced injustice, who hasn't in this sin-cursed world? We all have to varying degrees. Specifically, these believers were, were facing a host of injustice that was, that was poured out on them. The promise is that God will take care of it. God will do what is right. He will render ultimate righteousness. Here's the thing. You don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to figure I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to I don't have to be so concerned with with uh, dissecting every single uh problem or issue and deciding who's wrong and who's right and God can do that. I don't have to worry about well how is God going to 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 render this righteousness and when is God going to do that and and, and is he going to make sure to get everything? Is he going to miss something? I don't have to worry about any of that. Why? Because he's righteous. And he'll do something with what's going on in my life. I can trust him with that. There's the promise of righteousness. And he uses the word recompense. There's a promise of recompense. And the idea of recompense is payback. It's repayment. It's what we all want when we go through injustice. We want payback. We want repayment. We want recompense. And there's there's a... A a, a clear correlation in verse 6 where God says he's going to recompense tribulation to those that trouble you. And those words come from the same root word. They're they're tied together. God's going to put on them what they put on you. This is a perfect accounting. One for one. Two for two. Because God is keeping the books. And God is the perfect accountant. Now, let's be clear and remember that this is something that God does. This is not something that we do. We as individuals do not have the right to take recompense into our own hands. Specifically here on this this earth, God has instituted something called human government, and they are supposed to, not that they always do, we understand that, but they are supposed to Deliver justice. I would say, how's that working for us? But I don't want to go there, all right? But ultimately, they are accountable to God. And God is the one who is going to take care of the ultimate recompense. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30, We know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. You're familiar with Romans 12 and verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. This is God's promise to us. This is God's assurance. Based on his righteousness, he promises ultimate justice. And so no matter what you're facing, no matter how unfair or unjust it might be, what you're going through. And it probably is. Because so much of suffering is a result of, uh, of the sin of this world. You're probably going through it. It's, it's probably a result of somebody mistreating you. But it doesn't matter. The promise to you is God will make things right. Rest in the promise in who God is. Amen. Rest with us. Good. Rest in the righteousness of God. But number two from verse number seven. I want to keep moving tonight. Not only can we rest in the righteousness of God, but we can also rest in the revelation of God. Verse 7 says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that Jesus is coming. He is going to be revealed. Revealed. That's the idea of it, something being unveiled, uncovered. Before you kind of have a hard time understanding what it is, or maybe you don't know all the details. It's kind of like you know, when, they, when they unveil a, a, a new monument or a memorial, and they, they cover it over with a... A cloth and tie that cloth over you can kind of see what it is like i could see how tall it is what the general shape is but you don't know all the details until they pull the rope and and the cloth slides off and oh i see what it is i know exactly what it is it's uncovered it's made fully known there's an awful lot about this world that'll be corrected when god fully makes himself known There's going to be, and I just chose to use this word, there's going to be an education that goes on when he is revealed. Notice how it's described in verse 7. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. He's going to come from heaven. Speaking of his authority. He's the only one. It's going to come from heaven. Ultimate authority. He's in the place of ultimate authority. He's going to come with his mighty angels. I don't have an army of angels that I command. But he's the Lord of hosts. He's got an army. He's a powerful God. And we'll learn a lot about his power when he's revealed. When he is displayed. When he's demonstrated for the world to see. And he's going to come from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire. Speaking of his judgment. He has all authority. He has all power. And he's coming. To judge sinful mankind. You better reckon with who God is. Who Jesus is. Because he's coming. And you're going to get an education if you haven't already accepted this in your heart. You haven't already become a born again believer. You're going to get an education in who he is. But not only do we see education, but we also see vindication in verse number 8, it talks about how He's going to come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. There's, there's vindication. And this vindication is reserved specifically for a group of people. Who are these people? Well, the, these are the ones who, first of all, they know God. And second of all, they have obeyed the gospel. And those two are related, of course. When you obey the gospel, when, when you come uh, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... Your your spirit is regenerated. You become a child of God. And now you have a relationship with God, whereas before you weren't able to. This vindication is reserved for those who know God and those who have obeyed the gospel. And if we think about the Thessalonian believers, it was those who claimed to know God. Those who claimed to be the people of God, specifically the Jews. It was the Jews who did not like the message that Paul was preaching. It was those who said, we have a special relationship with God. We're close to God. We know what God wants and what God has said. And you believers, Thessalonian believers, you don't belong to God. We do. And not all, but many of those believers were Gentiles. They're looking at the Jews and saying, we don't have what they have. We don't have the pedigree, we don't have, we can't trace our lineage back to God's people. We just received the gospel, that's, that's all we did. And if you're experiencing that persecution and injustice at their hand, well you long to be vindicated. You long to, for God to settle the score, these are my people, you are not. Vindication. Of course, this vindication is going to take two different forms. One's going to be the word vengeance. And can I just say that is a scary, scary word. If you sit here tonight, you don't have a relationship with God. You have not obeyed the gospel. This is a scary place to be. Coming face to face, eyeball to eyeball with the vengeance of God the retribution, the revenge of God. It's a scary thing. Yep. Now, as a believer, as one of those that belongs to him, I understand that sometimes God disciplines or chastises me. But that's only allowing just enough, just enough pain and discomfort to get me back to where I belong. Amen. He chastises his own. But he punishes those that don't belong to him. There's a model in parenting here that's very powerful. We don't punish our children, parents. We discipline them. We chastise them. Because you know what punishment is? Punishment is, I'm going to exact out of you what you exacted out of me. It's retribution. And obviously, we know, this is righteous. This is just. It is right for God to do this. How much have you sinned against God? How much of the wrath of God have you brought upon yourself? Well, just go to the law. Look, you'll be able to see it there. That is the vengeance that you face. There's vengeance. There's punishment. He mentions that in verse number 9. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. This is the experience of God's retribution. Punishment that will bring destruction. Everlasting ruin. Everlasting as without end. No no limit to the duration. Unlimited duration. Ruin in your life. If you have not obeyed the gospel, if you do not know God, He is coming back, and this is what He's promising to come back and do. There's going to be destruction in that punishment. There's also going to be separation in that punishment. Everlasting destruction from the presence of God. This is ultimate death. Mm -hmm. Ultimate separation from God for all eternity and... Separation from the glory of his power. What it is and what it is like to know him, to know his ability, to know who he is, separated for all of eternity. Now, for the believers in Thessalonica, the, the, the reason why Paul is revealing this is this is meant to be an encouragement to them. This is meant to be a vindication to them. And whether or not you receive rest from this attribute of God or from this truth about God is completely dependent on whether or not you have been obedient to the gospel. And I would be remiss if I didn't plainly ask you, have you obeyed the gospel? It's a yes or no question. There's no middle ground. There's no maybe I think so, possibly, have you obeyed the gospel? Because he's going to come, and part of his coming, is going to be education, it's going to be vindication. Lastly, tonight, it's going to be glorification when he comes. Verse 10, When he shall come to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day glorification the idea of being glorified when he comes to be glorified is the idea of, of being adorned with glory like wearing it as as clothing so to speak and that's how he's going to come he's going to be glorified but did you notice this is very interesting how is he going to be glorified? Because God could just show up in his glory. God could do the same that he did on, on Mount Sinai when, when, he, when he showed up in his glory and, you know, he, Moses saw just enough that his face shone. God could do that. He has enough glory in and of himself to glorify himself, to just reveal who he is and, and spread that glory. But specifically, how does Paul say he's going to be glorified? He's going to come and he's going to be glorified in. His saints. So going back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, God will be glorified because of what He has done in me. Amen. Now that is just... That's crazy. Why? Why would God... I don't know why. But He's choosing to do so. So we're going to take Him at His word. Amen. So He's going to return... And because of what He's done in you, you will be responsible for bringing glory to Him. I mean, I think this is just yet another reason why Paul's telling these believers to rest. Be at rest. Stop your motion. Stop your worry. Uh, Stop all all of the the, the turmoil that's in your heart. Rest! Because He's going to come back and He's going to be glorified in you. And that's what He's doing in you right now. He's going to be glorified in his saints, and he's going to be admired in all them that believe. So God will not only be glorified because of what he has done in me, but God will also be glorified because of my faith or my belief in him. And this is not because you or, or me were or anything special but it's only because, as Paul points out, they had believed his testimony. When Paul came and preached the gospel, they believed that testimony. And because they had believed, because they came to Christ, because they were born again, they could now glorify God. They could now, um, as it says in verse 10, they could be responsible for admiration. <laughs> being put upon God. Because they believed The testimony regarding the gospel. Now, there's a little, that parenthetical kind of sometimes messes with our understanding. But there's an important truth that we need to understand. This is something that's exciting, but this is something for in that day. Meaning it's still future. It hasn't happened yet. It's still in that day. Not today. Still future, but it's coming. But because of that day, we can rest today. Because of the coming of that day, because of the assurance that that day is coming, we can rest today. And so Paul tells the believers, rest with us. Rest. In the same way we think of our wonderful place that can has that ability to, to bring us to a place of rest. There's attributes there that bring us to that place. There are attributes of God that we need to know, to meditate upon, to be reminded of. And when we are, we can experience that rest. We need to be reminded of God's righteousness. Because of his righteousness, he's doing something in you, through you, and with you. He's right. And God's going to write everything. I cannot tell you how much of a comfort that is to me, to know God's going to write things. We have disagreements. We talked about those this morning. There's, there's things that we disagree on. There's, there, there, we, look, we look across the world, people who call themselves Christians, and we say, well, I, you know, I, I don't think what they're doing is right, but I mean, I don't know. And there are times when I look, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm standing upon what I believe the Word of God says, but I don't know. Here's the thing you don't need to know. God's going to do what's right. He's going to correct what needs to be corrected. He's going to commend what needs to be commended. You can rest in Him because He's righteous. And you can rest in Him because one day He's going to be revealed. All that needs to be made known. Well, you don't understand. They, They say they love God. They say they're doing right. But I know how they really are. Okay. You might be right. You probably are. God's going to reveal it in that day. There's, going to be, there's, there's, there's no flesh that's going to be able to hide from His presence. There's no secret that's going to remain underneath you know, the, the, the rock, so to speak. There's no conspiracy that He is not going to unveil. But see, we get all bent out of shape and wrapped up with, this isn't right and that isn't right, and I think that this is going on, I think this is going on, Hey! Rest. Rest with us. Rest with us. Because he is righteous, rest. Because he's coming again, rest. Be at peace. Be at calm. And do what God wants you to do. Rest with us.